Hello everybody, James here, Franchise University with Shane Douglas. There he is with the f most famous six fingers in wrestling. Yeah. All crooked and bent <laughs> up. And <it's... laughs> Now, as uh, as I usually say on these things, I can't remember if there are any plugs or anything, so we're just going to get cracking on straight into it. So, Clash of the Champions 22. I'll give you more information on the show itself, you know, attendance and all that kind of thing when we get there. But as we sort of established with our last two episodes where we have gone back to pay-per-views or big shows past. I'm going to give you some of the news beforehand, and then we're going to sort of react to it. And when I say news, I mean the news that happened a couple of weeks before the clash, and then we'll end on some news that happened afterwards as well. And the big news, uh, aside from Starcade wrapping up a couple of weeks earlier with Steamboat and Shane Douglas versus Brian Pillman and Brian, uh, Barry Windham, and Sting versus Big Van Vader being particular highlights, the big news in the wrestling world occurred the month before this clash a few weeks earlier. When Nails... Kevin Wackholes was fired from the WWF. Was that an applause there, slightly breaking out? Yeah, a little, little golf clap. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> there's a modicum of respect, I think, for most of the guys in the business to to Kevin Kelly and Nails. Yeah. Uh, so a few weeks earlier at the Clash, uh, he ended up throttling Vince McMahon over a pay dispute relating to SummerSlam 1992 that lasted, for, not the throttling, but the arguments, 45 minutes to an hour. After, fight, after the fight was eventually broken up by WWF agents Sergeant Slaughter, Earl Hebner, Arnold Skoland, and Gorilla Monsoon, Nails called police, claiming that McMahon had tried to molest him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. and, brilliant, uh, brilliant cover. Yeah, brilliant cover. I mean, he's so pretty as well, wasn't he, uh, Kevin, as well? <laughs> and uh, this was apparently the second... I never heard this until today. I'd researched it. This was apparently the second time Vince had made an unwanted advance on Mr. Nails, uh, the last mm. time happening a month earlier at Madison Square Garden. He then goes to do really nothing in wrestling. He's more or less, I won't say retired, but uh, then he gives an impassioned I hate Vince McMahon's guts speech at McMahon's federal steroid trial that was very much counterproductive to, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm sure, his intended goals. <laughs> now, uh, Papa Shango replaces Nails in house show main events versus The Undertaker. Nails, uh, how much interaction, if any, did you have with uh, Kevin Wackholes over the years? Yeah, very little. Uh, he, as I recall, was a guy that sort of kept to himself, not not in a jackass way or anything. He just like came in, did his thing, left. Uh, uh, I don't, in my recollection, recall him like palling around with anybody. Uh, you know, you sort of, you know, when you're on the road, you sort of click up with you know your 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 buddies and you know, pals and things. Uh, and I don't recall ever seeing Kevin. I, it's not to say he didn't, uh, but I don't ever recall seeing that. But, you know, he always seemed to be a pretty straight up dude to me. Um, you know, obviously a tough guy, uh, you know, just came in and just did his thing. And, and that was it. You know, it was uh, uh, pretty always straightforward, at least around me, in my recollection. Uh, telegram, telephone, telewrestler. How long did it take <laughs> for you to hear the news? And actually, what was your reaction? Because at the time you'd come off, you know, very favorable sort of run with the WWF and I imagine that you had sort of fairly positive opinions of Vince at the time. So what were your reactions to that news? Yeah. Surprised uh, because, you know, it, I mean, like this is the kind of like, having straddled both the real world and the wrestling world, right. You know, having been a teacher and, you know, started some businesses and things, it, it's the kind of thing you can't, you know, in any job you've ever had, have you ever thought like you're going to go there and somebody's going to beat the boss up, right. It just does not the kind of thing that typically happens, but in wrestling, we're at this time we're sort of in this gray period between old school, new school, sport, uh, professional wrestling, sports entertainment. So the business is in this transition period uh, 
you know, but but in either of those schoolings, it still was never copacetic to say, okay, I'm going to beat the boss up. Uh, that's what told me when I first heard, like, you know, you're, you're taken back, like, huh, what? And then, like, you start to think it through and go, okay, like, because there's always these scuttlebutt rumors. You know, like, I, I'll state it like Bruno used to always state, state it, San Martino. I can't say I saw with my own eyes, but I would always hear these stories. And now that doesn't make them true or not. Uh, but when you base it on, you know, how long being in the business then and working there multiple times, the things that we had seen on planes and, you know, different buildings and things like that. And then you start putting pieces together. And again, that, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're, you're correct in the, in the puzzle that you assemble, but you know, the old saying goes, where there's smoke, there's fire. And, and there was certainly the same picture kept popping up, uh, whether it was being told in the dressing rooms, on planes and cars, traveling in hotel rooms, hotel bars. You know, you would hear this constantly over and over again. And then this happens with Kevin Kelly. Uh, uh, you know, you could tell that he was the type of guy that wasn't trifled to be trifled with. Like, he, he didn't seem like he suffered fools well. And, you know, being a big, tough guy like that, like, you know, if you know the the allegation being that he made advances on him, uh, I'm, I'm sure Kevin, you know, would have shot that down and said, "Like to try it a second time." Like, okay, it wasn't successful the first time, so let's try it again. I, it, it, it just seems odd, but I do know that from that point forward, uh, Vince McMahon would never go into a room with a wrestler alone again, and. Uh, you know, the way I'd always taken this story, and again, this is like, you know, it's not a thing that comes up quite often, but like when my always take on my, my take on the story since then had always been there was a money dispute. I, I'm hip. Uh, I get that. Uh, you know, experienced it myself. And uh, that there was this, you know, confrontation over the money, and Kevin beat the hell out of him. And, made the allegation based like to protect himself so that Vince couldn't go and say, Hey, this guy beat me up or whatever. Um, and, uh, that, that was, uh, as far as my recollection goes to where the story, I, I had never given the credence or looked at it from the point of view of, did it really happen? Uh, so I, I can't speak on that side of it. I just know that afterwards Vince was rare to go into, I, I shouldn't say never, like it's one of those generalizations, right. But he was very, very rare that he'd walk in. If you remember my story backstage, the last show at the, uh, at the garden, you know, we, the doctor and I are in the room with him and there's a, you know, blackjack lawns, a Rene Goulet, uh, 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 uh Arnold Skoland, uh, you know, all the uh, chief chase trouble, they were all in there, Pat Patterson, there was a group of people in there. And, uh, that was always, you know, my takeaway from it, that Vince going forward, but, you know, you said something like, you know, Kevin's comments at the, at the steroid trial, and we had talked last episode, um, you know, a little bit about the allegations of pending allegations right now. And so, you know, so-called impending indictment, uh, this is the, and I said it then, if you recall, like on the, on the federal steps after he won, <clears throat> Vince won, he came out and what did he say? I'm Vincent fucking McMahon, uh, you know, you know, you don't you don't doink the government in the eye like that, because if I'm the FBI agent in charge of that case with the DOJ uh, uh, person, uh, I might retire in 20, 30 years. And when I retire, you're the incoming guy. I'm going to give you that file and say, hey, keep your eye on this jackass. Mm -hmm. Right. And then when you retire, it's going to go on to the next one, the next one, the next one. You just don't poke the bear that, that way. And uh, so that, you know, it's possibly a little bit of what we're seeing in the current situation with uh, the 
looming indictment, um, uh, alleged looming indictment. But, uh, you know, with Kevin, like Kevin had always taken on like sort of a cult status in the business for anybody that had experienced the WWF, WWE that I experienced, uh, you know, and I think he'll always hold that cult status because of that, you know, a little bit of envy in, in, in the fact that he was able to do it and get away with it. Yeah, I always loved the story. There were loads of wrestlers outside and none of them bothered to help. They were just sort of... <laughs> anyway, <Yeah. laughs> uh, we uh, will move on now. Uh, this is actually going to be a two-pronged thing. Bill Watts, uh, shortly before the clash, announces yeah. that if wrestlers miss time due to injury, they will be paid workman's compensation, but not their full guarantee. Which leads us to Rick Rude not yeah. making the Starcade pay-per-view a couple of weeks earlier, and he would remain on the sidelines until March 1993 due to bulging discs in his neck how much uh, this is probably going to be an unfair question actually now that i read it back uh, very briefly but how much of rude's injuries do you think were a work if any to get the lloyds of london compensation sort of uh squared away in that sense because he wrestled till somewhere in 94 and then he retired due to neck and back issues but then a few years yeah. later when you knew him really well in ecw it seemed like he was desperate to get back in the ring yeah yeah well, my understanding at the time was that you had like, I, I, I want to say it was two years. Like if you made the claim on the Lloyds uh, and all those uh, uh, Minneapolis boys, uh, as I recall, if not all of them, a good chunk of them had gotten the 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 payout. And uh, uh, at some point we go back uh, to wrestling. I, I want to say as my memory serves, it was like a two, you couldn't wrestle for two years. Then after that, you you, know, you were clear. Well, actually, uh, Lloyd, I'll, I'll jump in very briefly here. Apparently, uh, if Rick Rude had been off th more than three months, he would have got $20,000 a month, uh, and then he would have also got the back pay for the three months that he was off as well. So that's for his specific deal. But also, it gets a bit more convoluted when it's combined with his existing contract, who he signed with Kip Fry as well, which would have been a favorable contract uh, for Rick at that point. Sure. Rather, far more favorable than Bill would have written it, I'm sure. Yeah, and and look, contracts are as they're written. Like you don't get to come in tomorrow and say, "Well, here's my interpretation on the contract." I mean, you can try that in court, but it's probably not going to stand. Um, you know, so again, as my and I can't speak on Ricks or Mikes or you know, the, uh, the Kurtz, the different people that had those uh, Lloyd's of London. I do know that Lloyd's of London, right in that same time frame, wouldn't wouldn't uh, insure wrestlers anymore. Uh, so. You know, I, I do remember the bump that he took in Japan, you know, where the, the, the floor was darkened and he took the bump thinking he was falling to the floor. And here the floor was beyond the stage, like another 12 or 14 inches lower. And I remember the bump, you know, it was pretty nasty on top of his head. Um, and, uh, you, you know, Rick, he, Rick was such a great performer. Like, he, you know, even with injury, you could be able to cover it up, I'm sure. But uh, he... When he came to ECW, you could tell that he wasn't quite the Rick Rude that, that I had known in '90, uh, you know, that or even '93 later uh, in WCW. Um, you know, there's always the rumors and the, the, the Minneapolis guys worked the whole thing. Uh, uh, I saw the bump that Rick took, and <laughs> would shock me if he wasn't injured. Uh, you know, so that, that that to me, that's one of those things. That I'm not trying to be vague, but it, it's one of those things that have become such like a, an almost urban legend in the dressing room. You know, these guys all got this insurance and, you know, all took sooner or later, they all claimed on it. And, uh, 
you know, a bill coming out and making the claim saying, well, you know, from this point forward, you'll only be paid this way, not that way. That would all contain be contained in the, in the contract. So uh, my guess is the way that Kip was giving out the contracts and I never worked for Kip. Uh, Marty and I were supposed to go as the, as the, uh, the new rockers uh, before <laughs> there was a woman found dead at his house after a party. Um, uh, but it sounded to me as though Kip Fry was just handing out like really sweet deals to everybody. And, uh, you know, those guys were also, you know, Rick, especially, and I say that because I, my interactions with Rick and listening to him talking about like what supplement to take and what time of the day and what to take it with and when to stop it. It was almost like he was a pharmacist and, uh, you know, but it, like I've you know, often said that in those things, you'd have that, you know, that, that sense of really real intelligence. And then that would turn right around. And like, if one was good, 10 was better. Um, you know, and I, I think most lay people know that that's, that's a fool's uh, approach, but these guys, to me, they, it had become such like urban legend in the dressing room that the guys would openly talk about it in the dressing room. And this, you know, there was a part of it that almost seemed like a worked aspect, like they're pulling our leg because it couldn't be that easy to go get a couple million bucks from Lloyd's and uh, especially in professional wrestling. Uh, but my understanding was that a bunch of them didn't. If you go back and look at that time frame, there were times when they, a lot of these guys were off for, you know, extra, extended portions of time. And uh, and then I know Lloyd's, like I said, right after that, like closed that door, no more wasn't covering wrestling anymore. So, um but the, you know, again, like with Rick, specifically with Rick, uh, rude the the bump that he took in Japan. I'm sure anybody could pull it up on YouTube and see. Uh, it was a hellacious bump, and you know, it, it's hard to explain to fans, I guess. But like when, in, the, in the old setup where they had the lights over the ring, and you know, the rest of the building was sort of darkened out. Uh, there's been plenty of times that I've been in the ring, and you look down from the apron, and it just looks like a bottomless pit. You know, you really can't see a floor; it's just dark. And, you know, you, you could jump off and think you're landing here and you're really landing here or here. Uh, you know, and the, the bump that he took with that, I, I, I forget if it was a senton or, but the, you know, the guy coming out and catch him and Rick going back thinking he's going to hit this way. And he actually hits this way, uh, you know, on top of his head with that extra, extra weight on top of it. So it was a really, for those of us that know bumps, uh, it, it was a, a bump that shocking that if he didn't snap his neck, uh, you know, because it was that kind of a bump, you know, into that dark black. Uh, I'm just looking here. Rick Rude would turn up. So his last match was on 9th of December 1992. Not last match, I mean, before he got injured. And then he returned 8th of March 1993. Okay, so where are we going to go? Next bit is David Boysmith and the WWF are in legal wrangling over Bulldog. Uh, was recently let go of receiving shipments of stuff. Let's just we'll leave it there. Faxing <laughs> Davey saying he couldn't use the British Bulldog name, despite the fact that he owned the trademark for it until October 1993. Davey was scheduled to debut at this very clash that we're going to be talking about today, but difficulties escaping his Titan contract saw his debut delayed a little bit. His WCW deal was said to be worth $100,000 for 100 dates, plus a separate deal for European shows where he would be the biggest draw and one more thing to add on it dynamite kid also returned to wrestling in england under uh, around this time under the name british bulldog number one which i had no idea until i read this morning in fact yeah i i had neither till i heard that interesting uh we shall uh move on with there we'll talk about bulldog i'm sure many many more times in future shows so we'll move on uh sure. justin rhodes won the u.s title last defeating steamboat just 
days beforehand when, unbeknown to Dustin, Barry Windham had snuck out and DDT'd Rick onto the floor, therefore allowing Dustin to win via countout. What an awesome way to put over your new champion, eh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's, uh, yeah, Barry was, you know, and this is how wrestling was at the time, right? You know, Barry had this prodigious run as a babyface and was a fantastic babyface. And, you know, it was starting to get to the point where I'm guessing, you know, at the age where like some, some of those big bumps he would take as a baby face, you want to be more judicious with those. And for those, especially at this time, like, we're, you know, we're wrestling, you know, the heels tended to be the more ogrely looking guys and things. And Barry was like one of those really special talents in the ring. Uh, that I, I'm sure Booker's and 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 Barry himself and probably the fans were probably wondering like what would he be like like as a heel, and uh, you know of course he took it as well as he took to being a babyface. Um, but this is that transition period. I know what Ricky and I had the match with him and 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 uh, Dustin, and then later would go on you know won the titles from them and then go on to wrestle Brian and Steve, and then there's uh this thing you know we'll talk about it a little bit later, but this this match where you know there's this inner mingling of all these different faces and uh uh you know and dustin somehow just didn't fit into that mix to me like it, it was you know dustin was more the worker and these guys like he, he did with you know with steamboat obviously but it, it just sometimes you look at a match at least for me i'll watch and look at something and something looks like okay these guys fit like a glove right i mean this this looks right and then there's other times you look and say okay like this one doesn't quite fit in like it's just a, like an odd piece out there and uh because barry was transitioning in that heel baby face role and dustin was like alongside it it seemed a bit awkward for dustin but you know he's such a pro that he's able to to make it work um but i i don't want to get too too far ahead and 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 discussing the uh later in in the show uh, the, the the main event of that of that show that clash uh but you know, Dustin, when I go back and, and watching all of these, the first thing that jumps out to me is like how young we all were. You know, like, my God, you look at it and like, we're all babies. And uh, how old were you, uh, in it, fact, uh, dude, 1993? Uh, 27, 8, like in mm -hmm. that range. Uh, so, you know, it was, we were, we were kids. And, you know, but like even like, like Arn and, 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 uh, 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 Orndorff and and Vader and and Steamboat and all I mean everybody looked young 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 and uh, but you know like what, my my biggest takeaway is in going back because I don't routinely watch these matches I haven't seen these matches probably in twenty five plus years uh, but what strikes me is how hard everybody's working and you know how good the the, the talent were. Uh, you know, you watch like now. I'll point some things out when we get to our match with with Brian and Steve. Uh, those little things that I'm looking for as a performer, and you watch Steve, and I've always said it about Steve. His positioning is impeccable. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's none better in the business, and and you watch him and just see how fluidly he's doing these things. Uh, Steamboat in much a different way, much more the master. Uh, you know, just mechanically to the A to B to C and just making it look incredible. But Steve's looks more like choppy by design, uh, you know, a little more haphazard, but he's really doing the same thing Steamboat's doing in a different degree. Uh, and, you know, you watch, like, again, when I'm watching these matches the entire show, uh, I was looking at watching Johnny be bad in, in, in the, what, the second match. And, you know, he, I said, what a shame because he was like five years too early. 
You know, a, a few years later, man, that kind of character was going to be huge. But he was one of the first to come out and do that kind of a character. Um, and and you watch it in context now, having the backdrop of what the business would do beyond that. And then, boy, he was just a little bit too early. You know, he, yeah, he had he crested at the right time. Well, he who, who knows where he would have gone. Uh, but man, <laughs> oh, babies in those things. It's crazy. I'll, uh, well, it will definitely uh, Mark Merrill will be brought up quite soon. Also, I've got something else for Dustin Rose, but I'm going to leave that for a little later. You'll understand why when I bring it up. Uh, next bit of news is that, and I don't know exactly what date this is, but Medusa leaves WCW either right at the end of 1992 or early 93, but I think it's the end of 1992. Do you know why? Because I don't. I, I don't. Those are the types of things that happened. You know, if you look back over your career and you're thinking like, okay, these you know, really great talents are there, and then poof, they're gone. They, they, mm. they just disappear. It happened so often that, like, it was sort of just like the uh, the milk carton week. Like, who's on the milk carton this week? Like, who's no here, not here anymore? Uh, but you know, you're so nose to the grindstone. You have your own stuff to pay attention to, and you know, tending to your stuff. That, uh, that for me anyway, there wasn't time to you know go into the the soap opera of everybody else's stuff. Um, you know, you'd, you'd hear scuttlebutt, you'd hear little rumors and stuff like that. But, but Ducey was like, in fact, through her career, like I, where those few places our careers would inter, intercede each other, like cross over. Uh, that seems to be the takeaway. She's there and then she's not. And then she's there and then she's not. Uh, but I think a lot of that, like my take on it now and looking back is that Medusa was ever a professional. And uh, uh, when things would get to the she she was one of those people that had that that foresight to okay well this is heading in the wrong direction no reason to play it out and get out of here uh that was the way i always took it i don't know if that's the way it was but um you know i've always seen her like one of the like the professional pros in our in our business uh one of the possibly the reason was supposedly that she wanted to wrestle in wcw wasn't really interested in a women's division but you know what i looking back at Many years ago, WWF in the mid-90s and WCW when she jumped over there. It's a man, do you know what? Especially for, a, it might seem weird me saying it, but a Western woman in the 90s, man, she could go like the Japanese girls back in the day. She really, really was really good. And WCW yeah. especially just would not let her wrestle at all if they could help it. Yeah, I, yeah, and I think in WCW there was always this, even though we were outwardly saying we're the wrestling company and you know and that was what it looked like there was always this nipping around the periphery of trying to mimic in some ways the sports entertainment stuff and i always thought it was just an absolute mistake as a business person whether it's you know selling hot dogs on the street corner professional wrestling the last thing you want to do is be johnny come lately to the hot thing you want to be the guy that's creating the next hot thing and uh, as with the last episode we did on the on the uh, the one uh, uh, pay per view, and now uh, today the clash. Uh, when I'm watching that, I'm thinking to myself, "There's a, these are good matches. You know, the the, the, the talent's really good in the ring, and uh, you, you know it's they to me WCW made its fatal mistake, uh, and who knows if it would have been sold or not after that. But to me, the, the, where where WCW really started carving out its own headstone was when it started trying to mimic the sports entertainment stuff uh that was never seen as that kind of a company and we were never going to out vince vince at being vince uh let him be that let's be this over here and even if there's a little bit less you know rating or money than than them over there 
Uh, I would dare say Aris Prada was a lot cheaper company to run at that time, comparative. Uh, so, you know, it's the same thing with ECW. When we made the conscious decision to go after that 18 to 49 male demographic, that was by design. Uh, there was an underserved demographic that was being pushed out the door because they didn't want the cartoons and, you know, WCW started trending that way. So along came this company that was going to cater specifically to them. Now that doesn't mean it's going to preclude women from watching or younger kids from watching or whatever, but by design, that was the demographic we went for. And I, you know, be a bit braggadocious. We probably owned that demographic for the majority of the time that we were running. Uh, and it, you know, ultimately, you can say, okay, well, you know, we need to add hot dogs because we're selling hamburgers. But you know, once you start to water that down and start to go in that direction, you know, the the, the fans, you know, the the fans who want the hamburgers are going to leave and go someplace else. And and I think that's what happened, both for uh, ECW and WCW. And you know, I think the takeaway is, you know, there's Coca Cola, there's Pepsi, and there's Seven Up and Sprite. You know, there's you, know, you can have your choice of the four. Uh, but if you're going to go out and try to be like Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola's probably got that covered. Uh, find the demographic that you can own. Uh, their money's as green as everybody else's. There may be less of them, but you're not going to steal away many of the other companies, uh, kids like in WWS case, the tweeners, uh, and in WCW's case, the older people that have grown up watching the NWA and all of that. Th those are, you know, it's like trying to get people to switch cigarette brands, right? They're, they're going to stick with what they are. And the same thing with wrestling, wrestling fans, the same thing. And, and when you digress from that, when you move away from what it is you, you intended originally for your promotion to be, that's when I think you start losing fans. Uh, I'm going to give you a few more bits of news. We won't dwell on these. Ultimate Warrior uh, also fired the same day as the British Bulldog for the same reason, makes his first post-WWF appearances of the Warrior, wrestling Hercules in front of 500 people in Billericay, or is it Billerica, Massachusetts. Uh, Ray Rougeau is hired as French language announcer, as well as partially replacing Mean Gene doing some interviews in the WWF. And this is the weirdest one that I found. Angelo Poffo attempts to open a promotion in England called World Alliance Wrestling. Huh. I have yeah. no idea about that one. <laughs> yeah, it's a left fielder. Uh, you know, I, I think we had talked in the last episode about, you know, uh, Ric Flair and, and you know, penchant for to keep going back to the well. And I'm, I'm guessing with Angelo, he had run a fairly successful promotion. Uh, when you see wrestling as hot as it was at that time, uh, you, you could see where investors would say, hey, you know, maybe there, there's another product that we can offer over here. And, you know, you go and look at, at Angelo's background and ha having run a successful promotion, you could see how some investors might say, hey, this is the guy to go with it, it, it you know, potentially. Uh, history tells us that that sometimes isn't necessarily the case. <clears throat> you know, Bruno trying to start, uh, what was it called in Pittsburgh, uh, international wrestling or something like that. Uh, and it was like two or three shows and done. Um, you know, when, when the, the time marches on, you got to keep up with those times. You can incorporate some of those things. But the thing I always say, we're not taking wrestling back to 85. We're going to take the best of 85 and bring it up to this and, you know, create an amalgamation between those styles. Uh, the tried and true typically always works, but it doesn't work when you just say, okay, we're going to go back to doing it just like that and have none of this current stuff. And, you know, we're going to basically turn back the hands of time. Can't do that. Time always marches forward. I know, just anyone bring it, uh, trying to start a new wrestling promotion in 1993. And if, yeah. if wrestling was on life support in America in 93, then it was dead in England. The other, that's why all the WWF guys and WCW went to Europe, because, you know, they were climbing for American wrestling. Anyway, sure, Clash, sure. 
Clash of the Champions 22. Oh, yeah. It opens with the the uh, dis- I was going to say the disappointing news that Heavy Metal Van Hammer is out of the main event that evening due to an injury. Um, the only story I ever hear about Heavy Metal Van Hammer is when William Regal headbutted him at Diamond Dallas Page's party. Have you got? I mean, you can tell the same story. I love that story. But have you got any uh, any other stories or similar stories about Van Hammer? No, it, it was uh, you know I I always got along great with him. It seemed like an easy easy going enough guy. Uh, I think I mentioned this in, in another episode. You, you know, when you're watching people, uh, you know, in the dressing room, you're watching the monitor at the curtain and watching. Uh, it's much like music to me. I'll I'll hear them come out and say, "Hey, here's the Rolling Stones' new hit song." It's go, yeah, it's not very good. You know, like I, like my ear, you know, and I'm pretty solid on that. I can tell you, like if some if they say something gonna be a hit, I can tell you if I believe it's gonna be or not. And I'm usually right on it. Uh, I just have that earwick. And the same thing with wrestling. You watch it and go, "Okay, like I'm watching this. I'm I'm being told this, but I don't see it." And uh, uh, please understand, this is not me gauging myself against anybody else. It's just me looking at a talent going up or down, you know, and I, I never saw him as uh, like a, a guy that there was another match later uh, with uh, uh, Johnny and Joe's brother, uh, Mark. Yeah. Uh, and now green. Um, same thing when you watch that and you see like on, even on the cover, it's just this sort of like flop down on the guy and roll around and cover. It just looks sloppy. You know, it just, it's just not neat. And, uh, you know, and you watch it, you go, okay, probably not going to make it. And uh, Van Hammer always seemed like those guys, big guy, great body, um, you know, could play a guitar, you know, all those types of things they were trying to imbue into that character. But again, ultimately, it's about the in-ring performance once you get inside those ropes. And when you see those bigger guys like that, uh, that want to go out and try to show, hey, I can do the, like this move that Ray does or that uh, – Benoit does or whatever. Okay, great. You can do the move. Should you do the move? That's that's the real question. And uh, you know, at that point, you're just mimicking and sort of like uh, attempting to be something that you shouldn't attempt to be. You have to understand what your character is, right? And uh, you know, like my character would never go in there and say have a match with Hulk Hogan where I'm going to bear hug him, right? He's twice my size. It would look silly. Uh, so you, you know the things that your character should do or would do and should or wouldn't do. And I think that for, for Van Hammer, that was like one of the things. It was you know, the, the, the jumping shoulder butts and like trying to do the more aerial stuff instead of being that big bruiser guy that could have gotten in there and done that. Uh, but he had a great look. Uh, and at that time, they're trying to create new characters and they see, you know, rock music's big. They had the rock and wrestling connection not long before. Uh, you know, on paper, that you can see where their mindset was. But again, ultimately, it's just about like when you're looking inside the ring, and you know every wrestling show needs to have a curtain jerk and have have a, a you know a popcorn match uh, just by proxy of where it is on the card. And you know I, I don't think it's happenstance when you go back and look at the people that became semi main eventers and main eventers. Uh, you know, it's certainly not a universal rule, but it's rare that you see somebody get into like one of those upper positions and go, "Ooh, he's terrible." Right. You can see where they've tried to do that in the past. And typically those characters don't work long term. But for the most part, you can tell that when somebody with intelligence is booking, because usually the people that ascend into those semi mains and main events usually can carry the ball there. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of times, and you know, it's just like in baseball, everybody's trying to hit a home run, right? Doesn't mean every player, every player that steps up to the plate is going to hit that home run. Uh, and, and ultimately wrestling does need new characters. So there's always going to be a, you know, a, a try and fail, a try and a fail and a try, you know, who knows if it's five to one, three to one, one to one, you know, you try every time, every wrestler you're hiring, you're intending that wrestler to be a star, uh, you know, and through trial and error, finally becomes apparent it's not going to be, and they sort of either dwindle off or, you know, get jobbed off or whatever. But, uh, uh, the, the announcement from Bill that, you know, it, it seemed ill place to me, uh, you know, again, like I was talking about history being, you know, through the contemporary lens. So we're looking at it 23, looking back on, uh, what 93 mm-hmm. and, you know, trying to assess based on today. But at that time, you know, the company put a lot of time, you know, had been putting a lot of time into hammer and, uh, you, you could see in that context, why, you know, the boss would be coming out and talking about this and he's why he's not going to be at that show and stuff. But it also had, because if you remember, that sort of segued into a, uh, also a discussion about a son and we have an investigation. Oh, we, we're going to yeah. get there, Shane. I, trust okay. me, we're <laughs> going to get there. That's going to be fun. Just before we get off Van Hammer, uh, I'd like to... Uh, it's like Chekhov's gun. If you give someone a prop, and you will know this from your time in WCW the first time around with Johnny, eventually you're going to have to use it or yeah. you sort of end up sort of exposing yourself in the sense that mm, you're yeah. playing a part. Van Hammer couldn't really what play What are you guitar. talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. <clears throat> Listen, dude. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it's sort of like the skateboard thing, though, isn't it? I mean, they give you a skateboard. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I ever saw you use the skateboard. I think you might have seen Johnny ride down the ramp once, maybe, or, or twice. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, it's one of those things where if you give someone a prop, then at some point to be a character of substance, you, it needs to be part of you. You need to actually know how to use it. Correct. Yeah. Hey, for for everybody out there, I love the reference to Chekhov's gun. Google Chekhov's gun and you'll see what we're talking about. It's brilliant, <laughs> brilliant, uh, brilliant, uh, uh, you know, uh, illusion to, to point to. But, yeah, you know, it, like for me, I wasn't I, I didn't know how to ride a skateboard. I never rode a skateboard. Uh, even when I would try it, the problem was at TV pay-per-views and television tapings there were always big tv cables camera cables lighting cables going across you know you'd have to be damn uh what, what's the uh uh the, the uh, uh tony uh, uh the big skateboarder guy he's uh, Hawk. uh yes tony hawk right my son was you know went through a period when he went through that uh yeah you're gonna be exposed sooner or later and i guess you're alluding to uh a van hammer with a guitar Mm. And, you know, having that, you know, it's there. What is it? You know, is he going to play a, con- a show before each match, uh, you know, a song or something? It, it just is ill-placed. It just looks like, okay, I'm going to walk to the ring with you know, a bottle of seltzer water for no reason. It's just, okay, I'll put it down down there. If I'm not advertising it or whatever, why did I take it with me? Um, you know, I think at this time, WCW had a whole lot of that kind of stuff going on. Now, uh, as you said before, Bill Watts, we we will get to Eric, I promise you. Uh, in fact, uh, let me go through the uh, sort of bump of the show first. January 13th, 1993, 2.9 rating with a 4.2 share, making it the second least watched Clash in history, barely topping Clash 19, which garnered a 2.8. The attendance was 4,000, somewhat papered, I believe, in attendance. Tony Schiavone and Bill Watts welcome us to the Mecca in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, I just said there before, somewhat papered, 4,000. And as we know, as I alluded to it before, and you were right there, you know, every day going up and down the house shows, uh, that it was a bad time for wrestling everywhere from WWF, WCW, and 
indies were almost non-existent. There was Smoky Mountain, USWA, couples like that, barely struggling. Uh, How sort of bad was uh, WCW attendance on house shows in 1993 at the time? Yeah, really bad. Uh, You know... I understand for the fans out there uh, watching this up, we were paid directly off the houses, you know, so you go into a house and you're a opener or mid card match and you see 30% full, you know, you know, that's a shit payoff. I mean, it's just going to be. And so, you know, you start to get into this like malaise feel uh, where, you know, you're going to work, you're not working any less hard than you would before, but maybe you're not taking as many bumps and maybe, you know, you're being a little more judicious in the ring, not taking as many chances, which is really the, the, uh, the, the inverse universe of what you should be doing. Right. Uh, if the building's a third full uh, and you want to be half full next time, really work your ass off. But you know, when you're doing this night after night, say like, how many people go to work and can say, okay, last night, I remember every minute of my eight hour shift. Uh, it's the same thing in wrestling. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a job to us. And as special as it is to go to the ring each night, uh, you know, when you see that the, the, the building empty and, you know, you, you hear it before the show starts and well, people please move to the other side of the arena, you oh. know, cause they're going to you know fill up and you're going to, Oh man, like it's going to be a crap week on your paycheck. So, you know, it, it did have a definite effect, even though you were trying not to, uh, you know, and being urged not to, uh, it, it, it just, it just common sense. It does. And so, uh, uh, at this time, the houses were down. And I think this is what, part of the reason you see, uh, you know, Bill taking chances, right? Like, uh, you know, with a Van Hammer and he's going, there were a lot of these new, like there was that temporary time where you weren't allowed to do anything off the top rope. Uh, you know, and once wrestling had gone there, you can't pull it back. You can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. And if you do, then the crowd's going like, man, and they are getting a reason to look out. Cause someplace, the other place is still doing the stuff off the top rope. Uh, I, I give Bill credit for trying to think of other things to do like that, to, uh, you know, to try to put some legitimacy back into it and everything. But th- 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 you know, the nineties, as you're saying, it th- was th- across the board, but this is wrestling. You know, if you look back from the, from the start of professional wrestling in the earliest days, we would see these huge peaks and then these deep valleys and these huge peaks and these deep, it just would transcend that way. And I think it's just in anything, the natural course of it, when you're hitting these peaks, nobody's trying to think of anything creative because it's a business is great. But when it starts on that downslide, you know, you're on that roller coaster. It's going to the bottom of the hill. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You scream, you don't scream, you put your hands up, you don't put your hands up. That, that thing's going where it's going. And, but at least during this time, they're trying some stuff and through the course of hit or miss uh, success and failure, you start to hit on some things and then you, you bottom out and then you start to ride the next peak. Uh, you know, very, very, uh, typical. I mean, that's exactly what anybody would do in any business. Uh, try to find that next trend. Sometimes you're successful. Sometimes you're not. And, uh, WCW in this time, you know, even prior to like, uh, you know, I think Eric Bischoff gets uh, from the fans that were our hardcore fans for WCW or NWA. He takes the brunt of, well, okay, this is when they started transitioning towards sports entertainment. And in reality, that had started happening years before. That's why you have a Van Hammer with a guitar and all these d- different attempts. Turn him heel, turn him back, baby. Bring this one in, bring him out. Uh, there was a you know a lot of moving pieces in there at this time, and that really uh, preceded. Uh, 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 Eric's time in WCW. Eric would take it to a whole different place, 
But, you know, that was already going on prior to that. And and you can see in this pay-per-view as a microcosm, I think a whole whole big chunk, like I said, uh, you know, about uh, John B. Bad, you know, Mark Merrow. Uh, boy, you watch him come out and the charisma and the poise and everything else. But we know that because of today, looking back, we've watched how many people do that on, you know, these huge shows in WWFE, uh, and, and, you know, and later other companies. Uh, just a smidge too early in my estimation. But boy, he he oozed that. Uh, and, and on this show, you can see a lot of these ups and downs. And and, and we'll talk about those more as we go on to each of the matches. But uh, that was my takeaway from it. Like, okay, you could tell that the company's, it, the roller coaster is rolling downhill here, and and Bill, you know, in this case, is attempting to throw some st- to see whatever sticks. And you know, some of it did, and some of it didn't. You know, creation of Hollywood Blondes uh, had a hell of a tag team, and me and Ricky, uh, I think Barry turning heel, uh, you know, turned to be a bright spot for for WCW in the future, a little bit down the road from that. So yeah, but completely typical of what I expected in, in any promotion that's in in that downhill slide at that point. I had a look up. It was December 1992. The attendance average for WCW house shows was 930. Ooh, yeah, that so, sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what like the worst month is, but I mean, that can't be too far from it. Uh, what's... And this is this might be actually be a bigger question than I, than I sort of anticipate, really, but what do you think hastened the decline in popularity in wrestling in the early 90s, according to you? Because I can give a couple of examples. WWF-wise is the market leader. Hulk Hogan is on the outs pretty much i mean he retired quote unquote 1992 wrestlemania so this is some eight months uh there's also various federal investigations and other accusations as well uh of the two three things i've mentioned there how much credence or percentage of blame essentially for the decline of wrestling do you give them all well they're certainly all all complicit right But but there are others we're now by this time starting to see this wave of deaths that are you know starting to hit in wrestling, and for the fans sitting at home, like I can talk about my boys when they were younger and watching wrestling, and their eyes would be this big, and boy, they're in front of the TV and they loved it. And as they're getting older, they're starting to hear like, "Wait, my favorite guy died. Well, how'd he die?" And you know, that, there was always a sort of like dour side that was coming beyond these things. Uh, that because of the dirt sheets and you know just social media, you know, on, on its beginning beginning of its rise. You know, where suddenly we're hearing stories that would have never been heard before. Those would have always been kept kayfabe to behind curtain, uh, but they're leaking out. And I remember like when the David Von Eric story came out, uh, this is like right at the time I'm beginning to break into wrestling. And, you know, I would later hear the full story, but you're like, okay, the guy was what, like 24 and died. And uh, how do you die at 24? And, you know, just like one of those trainers, okay, well, maybe he had a, you know, congenital, you know, issue or something, you, you don't know, but it, but it's there, you know, it's in the back of your head and you hear that and then more, and then there's more and then there's more. And at the same time, I think there was this push by Vince to a expose the business to save the, you know, on the, uh, on the uh, commission taxes. Cause as a, as a show, you don't have to pay the commission tax. Uh, you know, I'd heard the number, don't know how accurate it is, that it was for like 1200 to 1500 bucks per show. So you're going to you know, expose how you cut the lady in half to do this in a business that had always been guarded. Now, we could argue, you know, would later come, but at this time, we don't know that wrestling is going to get to the stratospheric heights that we'd get in a few years later. Uh you know, so these are all part of it, and you can point the finger to a lot of a lot of us coming in that WCW is pushing, like me included, with Ricky Steamboat. You know, it was really Ricky Steamboat and this kid Shane Douglas with them. You know, you know, we were disparate parts at that point. Uh, 
Brian and Steve, as phenomenal as they were as a team, they were really both untested. You know, Brian was great on the stick, and, and you know, Steve's positioning in the ring was a second to none, but he hadn't yet become Stone Cold Steve Austin, right? So there's this, you know, the, the, again, like I always talk about looking through the contemporary lens. If you snap yourself back into this time frame and look just through that lens, and you have no idea the stuff beyond that, you can see where the fans are going, okay, well, like, there's less of the guys I love, like Flair and you know, all these stars that had been the NWA. And now we're seeing this guy, Brian Pillman, and this guy, Steve Austin, and this guy, Shane Douglas, and this guy, Tom Zank, and Tom Brandy, you know, all these young bucks coming in. Now, later, we would all prove ourselves in the business. But at that time, we were untested commodities. At the same time, Flair was getting older, Hogan was getting older. And so you've got this convergence of all these things, this move to sports entertainment that was heresy to wrestling fans and but it's being successful it's pulling younger kids in over here and jettisoning some fans over here so is the turnover good enough to to warrant losing those those fans that are going to be around forever um you know these are all the big question marks we're we're in the infancy still even though you know wrestlemania had started some years prior but we're still like in the uh, the beginning stages of you know pay-per-view and how, how what's too much and what's too little uh all these things are going on concurrently and so there's no way to say okay stop let's just focus on new characters or let's just focus on pay-per-views or but these things are all going and swirling in the blender at the same time and so you got to try to figure it out as you're moving along and i think all of them had some deleterious effect on the business but also then you could argue set the stage for that next big rise in the business. So again, that peak and valley, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, this young punk kid, Shane Douglas with Ricky Steamboat. Okay. I'm I'm a little familiar with him. Who is he? He hasn't really proven himself. I've not seen him. Like I've seen Steamboat and classic after classic, after classic, after classic. And, uh, you know, Harley race, another amazing talent. I was a manager. And so it's this sort of transition period in wrestling. That we could argue did or didn't contribute to the to the stratosphere we'd go into a few years later, uh, but these things are all swirling at the same time. You know, like you said the the pending retirements and unretirements, and uh, you know, iconic names in, iconic names out, new faces in. There's so much going on at this time that I think there's a. I'd be shocked if you look back and say, "Man, the houses were blowing through the roof," but it would in a few years. And I I, I don't think you can just dispel that all of that that was going on right then would settle itself out. You know, it's like when you shake and you put a big pile of dirt in a sifter and you sift through and you get down smaller and smaller and finally you find the relics. Uh, I think the same thing with wrestling. If wrestling was at a sifter at this point, we're digging through it and finding out who will be those next stars that are going to launch new promotions and and whatever. But at this time, we're still the, the untested kids that hadn't proven anything. Now, uh, as we... Sort of alluded to slightly before, and you were just saying about how Bill Watts was welcoming us with Tony Schiavone, and then he launches into uh, why his son Eric Watts has been suspended. That reason didn't okay, right? I know what the reason is because I had to look it up, but the fact is is that the reason wasn't actually explained whatsoever on the class show. Do you remember what the reason was? I mean, storyline wise, but do you remember what the reason was? Yeah, that there was some uh, that that uh, Eric was accused of. Something I and I forget, but they, I remember at the time thinking like this is silly, like this is not like it doesn't feel like wrestling. But as I watched it back last night, if you stop it and just look at it just as is, it sounds almost identical to what would happen today, right? 
I accuse my boss of sexual harassment in the workplace. And there's going to be stopped. There's going to be, you go home, you're paid leave. We're going to do an investigation. And so it seemed almost like way before it's time as I'm watching this, uh, I want to say a note about Eric, a great guy, uh, had been a, you know, football player, big college football player, um, had been brought in. And I don't think in the most optimal of circumstances, (laughs) I, you know, there, there was a way to do that prior. Maybe that might've been the way prior, but, uh, you know, the fact that he had not been in wrestling at all and the boss's kid pops up, you know, just reeked of nepotism. And and that was unfair to Eric. It really was. I mean, God almighty, this business is hard enough. We've talked about this ad nauseum to learn without that kind of added pressure to it. Uh, I, I thought he gave a uh, a decent promo. It looked at times to me like he was trying to remember checklists, you know, things he was supposed to say. But again, that's exactly what I would expect for a kid. And and at this time, he's a kid in our business. I, you know, the football aside, you know, this he's brand new to wrestling, and every wrestling fan knew, you know, obviously who his dad was, and 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 it it, it it's almost like when David Flair, it is like Dave, when David Flair came in. Um, man, he was he was screwed from the start because he's a second generation of perhaps the greatest wrestler in the history of our business. And I don't care how good you are, you're going to pale in comparison. And the same thing here. And, but you know, that, that, what the fans were seeing on camera was part of it. There was also another part behind the scenes that was vicious at times. Uh, I saw him, uh, a bill that is walk up to Eric and completely unassumingly walks up and no, you know, you could point out to Chris. I said, "Look at Bill's fingers in that thing." He said, "They have those sausage hands," and he comes up and he just hooks upper hook right into the short rib. Oh, knocks! And he when, when Eric goes to bend over, he yelled, "I didn't tell you to stand the hell up!" And he stands and he punches him again and does like two or three times so he can't get up. And he goes, "That's how you sell a punch," because he'd worked with Kabuki that night and didn't sell on the ropes that that well. Uh, you know, I'm thinking, Ooh, man, like it's long before me being a father, but now I can't see myself in any way doing that with my kids. Uh, I, I'm not judging Bill here. I, you know, again, different times, different places, but that was a, not, that wasn't a tough spot. That was an impossible spot for Eric, unless he was going to come in and be flair times three, you know, and, and, uh, learning on this job is not a very forgiving thing. I always thought it would have been much better suited to bring him in as an underneath guy under a hood, let him get some experience in the ring, you know, then expose him later if you want to, and then, and, and try that route. But, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you'd ask a second ago, and I, I gave that long winded answer about like things that are going wrong in the business. That was one of the types of things that was going wrong in the business. You know, the business as it was waning in, in this, in this Valley period, the last thing we needed was, you know, here's a gratuitous, here's my kid, love him, you know, throw him on the stage. And now you, you have him beaten Arn and you have him beaten, you know, big names and stuff. And that, that's sacrilege to wrestling fans. Uh, wrestling fans will take to you, but it, it's going to take time. You got to earn their respect. And when you finally earn their respect, they'll slowly transition to that. But they ain't going to, here's my kid today, first day in wrestling. He's going to beat who the biggest name in the business uh, or one of them. And, uh, you know, it's, it was unfair to Eric. Uh, but again, I think Bill was just, just trying something, you know, just trying to shake it up and trying to find something that would stick to the wall. I've, uh, I've interviewed Eric as well. I've spoken to him a few times and, you know, really personable guy. And, you know, he's full of charisma as well. And uh, yes. the thing is, yeah. he's, he had, 
or he would have had if given seasoning something proper to offer the business because he had the right height mm. you know he had the lineage he obviously bill watts is his dad and everything uh sure. i'll get to a couple of different things i'll probably ask you some other stuff as well uh relating to eric uh the th- reason why eric was quote unquote suspended was because arn anderson this is a, a, a pre-tape arn anderson attacked him at a petrol station gas station which is what you would call it yep and then Arn attacks him, and then uh, Eric puts the ST, the dreaded shoots fight hold, the STF, on yeah. Arn Anderson uh, in front of a fan cam, and that's why he ended up being taken off the show for storyline reasons. Now, this really didn't help for a couple of reasons. One, Eric stuttered his way through that interview. Mm. You could hear people booing in the background, and then when it goes back to Bill. And and keep in mind, this is 1993. You do not hear this very often. It's not like the John Cena days or the Roman Reigns days with mixed crowd reactions. You can hear fans screaming, Eric Watts sucks, while his dad was giving uh, a thing uh, to uh, the camera, uh, a thing, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, It also doesn't help that Arn Anderson is one of the most respected wrestlers, even back then, and one of the best wrestlers in WCW. And it also yeah. similarly didn't help that Arn Anderson had given an interview maybe a week or two earlier that aired on TV that was great. And yeah. it was so yeah. intense that he just ended up engendering more fan love through it yeah. as well. Um, oh, I also wrote this down. Eric Watts is backstage and he says there are acquisitions. So he sort of blows acqu- uh, acquisitions and accusations there on that one. Yeah. Uh, anything else that I want to bring up with Eric, uh, or tell you, in fact, is or ask you, I'm sorry, I'm not telling you, <laughs> is how nuclear... Well, Eric Watts had weeks training, a few weeks training before he was put on the road. How nuclear was the heat yeah. with Eric Watts, especially when he turned up in a Porsche? Well, not you know, not so much with the boys. I mean, you know, nobody was blaming him for being there. Uh, you know, I... And like you said, he's very personable, easy to get along with, you know, nice guy. Um, it wasn't that, but it was, you know, sort of like you, you know, you'd hear some later with like, you know, with Bill Goldberg, with you know, people that have been around the business, they're like, hey, this ain't fair. Like, you know, I've been here all this time and, you know, there's a sort of a, a perceived uh, pecking order. But when you're saying that you were just mentioning it and you know, they're doing the, the interview, uh, which was, I'm sure, pre-taped and you hear the crowd chanting this stuff. You know, rest assured, Eric, no matter where he is in the building while this is airing, he's hearing this. And when you're a young kid in this business, uh, you know, you, you're a baby face. You go out there and you show fire and you hear crickets, right? It's like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a slog. And so, you know, being so new to the business and being so young in it, I can't even imagine being thrown into that flame, uh, you know, weeks into training, uh, you know, with just a few weeks under your belt. You know, no, he, again, he's a smart, he's very smart guy. So, you know, he knows the nepotistic side of the view, the way this looks. And then you start hearing that. And then that creates self-doubt. And then that itself becomes a vicious cycle. Uh, it was just a really, really, I think, wrong thing to do. And 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 sad because, you know, I'm, I'm sure given time to, to grow into the business, like any of us, you know, he's a good athlete. Uh, he would have found it. And especially with that dress room to teach. But, uh, you know, it was uh, overtly, it looked like what it was. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 here's the boss going to try to, you know, with all this talk about, you know, if you get into a fight and you get beat, don't come back, you're going to get fired. You know, legitimacy, legitimacy, legitimacy. Boom, here's my kid. Um, <laughs> it was just, you know, incongruous. And it was a it was a disservice to, to, uh, to Eric. Uh, it was a disservice to the fans. 
And I, I can't say what went into Bill's thinking. Um, uh, I'm sure part of it, love for kid and you know, try to help him out. Uh, it's really ill-advised. I, I, I don't see how you could delude yourself and think that would work. And, uh, you know, there's no harm, no foul. Every single one of us in that dressing room came up that way, you know, and, and, you know, setting the ring up and earning your way in and, you know, being manhandled in that ring and stuff and learning, uh, you know, so that all of these things, like I said a second ago, these, they're all happening concurrently. They're all happening at the same time. And so you could see where the fan base would be dwindling away. Uh, they're really what if you were to if I was to say to you, give me a word or a sentence paraphrasing that clash of champions, what would you say? I mean, it's uh rise of the young guys, uh, uh you know sl slewing off of transitional. Not like a transitional yeah. show. You've got some of the old, a lot of the new. Ric Flair's not returned yet. So yeah, it's very much just sort of like in that nether world. In between the yeah. old and new. And understand with Rick, I mean, Rick was a huge portion of that equation. He was the NWA, the WCW, right? So without him there, you know, there's a there's a gaping hole in this episode. And, uh, you know, you know, everybody says they want a book. You know, we, were, we talked about Tony Khan and, and booking. Booking ain't an easy thing. It ain't just simple to sit down and, okay, Jane the Bristol, Shane tonight, <laughs> and then we'll do this and do that. And it's all going to draw money. I mean, you got to really think this stuff through and then figure out how it's going to play in real world. Like, is this believable? You know, like the, the dumping of concrete into somebody's car. Okay, look, 911, yeah, some jackass just dumped a bunch of concrete in my car. Yeah, he's, he's driving a cement truck. Um I'm getting a new car. Going to probably see you and win some money. Uh, you you got to play that stuff through. And and, and realistically, how is this going to be perceived by the audience that you're giving it to? And I think your word transitional is pretty good. You know, pretty pretty accurate to what that show was. Yeah, there were bright spots. Uh, I, I don't see anybody being lazy in the ring. It wasn't ah, somebody's half-assing it out there. Uh, but you know, when you got an audience that loves flair or loves to hate flair, either or. And Arn and all these iconic talents, and all of a sudden, here's a whole lot of these new guys. And then, then like the the segment where they had uh, uh, Harley and and uh, Paul and uh, Vader attack Barb, it was just like so up and down, in and out. What is it? Like, where are we going with it? It just seemed like boof, just stuff being thrown on camera that really had no rhyme, no reason, or direction to it. To me, anyway. There's one more thing about Eric Watts. So Bill Watts went on the 1900 WCW hotline to, and this is around the time of this show. I can't remember if it's before or after, to rip into Mark Madden over a parody he did of Bill and Eric and Dusty and Dustin Rhodes revolving around a fictitious uh, TBS broadcast skit that saw Dusty and Bill receive one last attempt to push their sons. And it culminated in Eric Watts being crucified but making a comeback with, quote, Eric Watts arising on the third day to an arena near you. <laughs> yeah, that's... yeah. I, I'm afraid later in ECW we'd have a similar with a upside-down crucifix, yeah. right? It's... Uh, uh, you know, wrestling is always parodying. We're playing off larger. If you go back and look at some of the extremely, by today's standards, racial stuff that we would see in wrestling, uh, you know, through the 50s and 60s. What it was doing was parodying society, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I think a lot, a lot of that goes into it. But when you start stepping onto stuff, you know, we had, had an off-camera discussion about religion. Uh, when you start dealing, with, especially today, 
with people's political beliefs or people's religious beliefs or people's whatever core beliefs that they hold dear to them, you, you're almost always going to step on the mine. You know, you're going to piss somebody off out there and, you know, pissing off can, you know, some like heels piss fans off. That's the hope to bring them back. So bring some more people the next time that's different than parodying religion or parodying somebody's political beliefs or, you know, the, what, what, you know, what they always talk about in, in, in real politics as the third rail, don't touch it. Cause you're going to get electrocuted. Um, and you know, I, when I was watching the 900 com commercial, uh, it brought back members. I'd seen it was so ubiquitous back then, but, uh, <laughs> on the thing, it said, uh, phone number no longer works or phone number no longer in service, something like that. So people wouldn't be trying to see if yeah. Bill Watts is still on the 900 line. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it was, uh, you, you know, but again, like if you're bringing people in like, like Mark, you know what Mark is, right? Mark's a contrarian. Uh, I've listened to him in Pittsburgh for, for decades now. If the Steelers have a good game today, he's going to go on the air tonight and say they sucked. Because it stimulates conversation. Oh, I'll call that son of a bitch and tell him they didn't suck. They won today, right? He's a he's playing a heel. And when you give somebody carte blanche and you're not going to be overseeing or telling them, hey, we want to do skits like this or that, don't be upset if somebody does something that, that offends you. Uh, I would say for Mark, he probably said a better taste and thought in that. But, you know, but, uh, you know. You can see, like in WCW, and all these things we're talking about. There's all these loose strings blowing around mm -hmm. that nobody seems to be in control of. Then they're wondering why, you know, the audience is is dipping down and and going where it's going. I mean, it's uh, I'd be shocked if if you had the idiot said complete sellout, turn away crowd. I mean, really, well, that's impressive for that garbage. But uh, I shouldn't say garbage for for that show. Um, yeah, it, it just looks like the chaos that we've all come to analogize with WCW, right? I mean, this became the how not to do it company. I should point out that I think this was Mark Madden when he, God, was he on PW Torch or something? I think he wasn't actually in WCW. This was a, a third party or dirt sheet or on the radio or something like that. that this mm. was uh, before Mark sort of got involved in the, because he was involved in the 1900 hotline at one point i think in the future but yeah we're finally going to get to in fact we're not even going to get to the first match yet we've talked an hour and we've not got <laughs> to the first match yet because there's just so much interesting stuff now we are welcomed by the commentators of the show jesse ventura and jim ross on commentary uh i probably asked you this before but where does jesse rank let's let's have a mount rushmore from you i know everyone loves a list a definitive list of the greatest color commentators of all time. Where does Jesse fall on that? Uh, in my book, number two, uh, he's right behind Bobby. Uh, he and Bobby both very different styles. Uh, Bobby Heenan, of course. Uh, Bobby could have been a stand-up comedian. I mean, he was just a funny guy. Uh, uh, Jesse, different, but Jesse was quick-witted. Uh, you know, I, as a commentator, I didn't have that. You, I can't remember a joke to save my life. Uh, and I'm not as quick witted as Jesse is to come off of that. Boom. That quick little adage you're going to throw in there right now that perfectly suits to what's on screen. Mine was more to approach it from a point of view of as an analyst, as a world champion, what am I seeing here? Explaining why this is a good approach or a bad approach. Um, I, you know, more analytical. Uh, those guys had something that I was always envious of because when you're on camera, especially live television, ain't no retakes, right? As Sid would later find out. Mm -hmm. um, uh, 
you know, so you got to be quick enough to be in front of that camera. Uh, and what stuck out of me with this show is when Bill comes on at the beginning, uh, very matter of factly, very informatively, you know, putting, laying out information, remembered a whole lot of names and different angles. And, and that ain't easy. Like when you're, you know, you're doing the spot specifics, okay, we're going to do a promo for Charleston, West Virginia. And it's going to, you're going to wrestle uh, Taz and it's going to be on Saturday, November 13th. And it's going to be this and that, or, you know, you can watch on channel seven. You got to remember all that and then do the promo and then go to the next one. And that's sort of all you're there all day doing that. It starts to bleed into each other. So Bill coming out and having this whole company in his head and all these other things going on, plus the business side and then going on camera and remembering these things and hitting them and, and, and laying them out there and saying them, uh, Tony Schiavone, the same thing. Again, there's no point where you can say, Oh, start, uh, I screwed it up. Let's, let's start over. Uh, you know, but these guys have done this, right? I see like, you look at Jesse, you know, just, uh, one step down for Bobby Heenan uh, because Bobby could be that humorous while you wanted to strangle him. Like you laugh while you wanted to choke him. Uh, Jesse just wanted to choke, right? If you, if you were a, a baby face uh, fan, um, you know, but really quick witted and you listen to like the things that he's saying through the show, these little, little things that he's throwing in there. Some are well-placed, some are ill-timed, but it's quick witted. It's he's coming up with that stuff. There's no script in front of him. Uh, you know, then you have Jim Ross, of course, quintessential play-by-play guy. Uh, and then Tony doing the segments in between. It, it really looked like a well-oiled uh, commentary uh, team. And, uh, you know, so I would say on that Mount Rushmore, as color commentators go, those two would be one and two. And then, you know, behind that, you, you I, I would say Jerry Lawler for sure. You know, Jerry's uh, so fun to hey, – a substrate of the Bobby Heenan school. You know, he, he, I don't think he's quite as funny as Bobby, but he's quick witted, uh, you know, and can throw those things in uh, and, you know, makes it go really. And, you know, even though he was more like a play by play guy, I always saw Gene Okerlund as sort of that guy that straddled between the two um, because he would give the matter of fact point of view, the, 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 the straight man shtick. But then he'd also at the end of it, like throw some little comment in, you know, that you know, he'd listen to and just sort of chuckle at, uh, as far as announcers go, to meet Joey Styles and it's taking nothing away from anything. I think Joey Styles was the best because he he didn't have somebody to play off of in, in all those times. Uh, you know, and and you know those are you, you, even though we were doing VOs in ECW, understand what a, what a VO is. You're doing live to tape, so if you screw it up, you got to go back and do it again from the beginning and do it again and do it again. Uh, and Joey, I don't ever recall Joey having to never go back and do it again. Uh, so yeah, but but there's so you know there's a lot of great announcers in wrestling, and I, the, the best of them I think can can imbue those characters. What I what I disliked also from a personally from a color commentator's point of view is you know in this case Jesse and Bobby are both heels, so they're obviously just proponing the heels' point of view. You know, a real expert on something could begrudgingly say something positive about a babyface mm-hmm. uh, or vice versa. Um, you know, it doesn't mean you have to say that they're, they're the greatest of all time or anything, but you know, somebody throws a touchdown pass, hey, it's a touchdown pass. And, you know, so I, I when I approached it, it was sort of trying to come forth from that analytical point of view, in large part because I didn't have the wit that Jesse had and I couldn't remember jokes like they were nearly as funny as Bobby was. Uh, but yeah, to me, they're like they're one and two for sure. Uh, not that you asked for my opinion, but I'd switch him, I'd say Jesse number one because he was because he was big time when Jesse was on commentary. That was big time, and when Bobby was on commentary, it never felt quite as big time. So really, I, yeah, 
Well, okay, I think it's just because yeah. Jesse did the first six WrestleManias in a row, and when he's on the, but also he's got you know the more commanding voice. He's a yeah. little less comedic. Uh, I thought his chemistry was bob on with Vince McMahon, especially and Gorilla yeah. Monsoon. And mm. there was, uh, it's funny actually because I'd, I'd written this down as well. This does pertain to this clash: is that both Jesse and Jim Ross have both admitted that it was Jim Ross's fault why their chemistry was not as good as Jesse's with the other two, because I think Jesse's way of saying it was. Well, Jim wouldn't sell my stuff. I'd throw out a really obvious line and Jim wouldn't bite on yeah. it. And yeah, yeah. I just don't think those two got on personally that well anyway. And I think even Jim's held his hand up and said, I, I, could have been, I could have been more receptive. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, pro, professional to say, Jesse could be a bit grating, believe it or not. You know, we, we would have some, I was telling Moose last night, we'd have some, in the dressing room, some, you know, some real heated political discussions. And it would always end with him going, well, you know what you're talking about, and he'd walk out, right? Just <laughs> cut it off, you know? So, uh, but yeah, you know, it's, again, me putting Bobby at number one is only because I think, again, in that sports entertainment uh, system, you know, and in, in, in what they would take wrestling to, uh, Bobby so fit into that. You know, and uh, uh, the last time I saw Bobby, one of the last times, uh, you know, he'd had the surgery, no jaw, and we're at WrestleCade, and I see his wife push him in his wheelchair. So I gave my bag to Moose. I went, give me that. I'll, you know, I'll push him down so we get get there. And uh, she calls inside to the vendor. The vendor comes out and meets. So we get go inside, and we get on the elevator. And the vendor looks at the thing. He's going, and Bobby says something, and, and I'm, please understand, I am not making fun, but this is what it sounded like with no jaw. And, row, 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 row. and his wife goes, <laughs> just laughing, she smacks him on the sword. I said, what do you say? She goes, he said, that's the first time I've ever seen somebody get lost in an elevator. <laughs> and, you know, it was so typically Bobby Heenan, just so perfect for that second uh, that, you know, I thought he, he does this 24 hours a day. This isn't just when he's on camera. Uh, but Jesse, you know, having been that big, star in wrestling you know certainly brought some of that panache with him too uh i you know you'll probably ask 10 other people and get you know five that say bobby five that say jesse uh six four whatever uh but it's you know it's going to be in the eye of the beholder but yeah you know, suffice it to say both of them are phenomenal at it first match cactus jack versus the prettiest man in wcw johnny b bad uh, highlights how hit and do you know actually I thought this first match for what it's worth highlights how hit and miss the WCW theme music was I thought Cactus Jacks was bloody awful Mr. Bang Bang I listened to it afterwards whereas Johnny B. Bads was great absolutely fit the character but it almost seemed like almost the same song just like rejig slightly um, yeah. Bad Blaster into the crowd match kicks off a quick affair perfectly fine although there's one bit before the finish where uh, Bad whips Cactus into the ropes that always it looked jarring to me because he doesn't do it in the middle of the ropes, he does it almost near the corner, and that leads to the finish where uh, Johnny does a dive off to do a sunset flip. He misses, yep. uh, sorry, a dive off the top ropes to miss the sunset flip, misses. Cactus Jack does an elbow and pins him. And I thought that's a Bill Watts finish if I ever saw one. Oh, yeah, yeah. There's something that I, that I want to point out of this. Sorry, but this is the way I watch matches. Uh, you know, I've, I've known Mick since well before this, and uh, you know the way he's carrying himself. You you can see the 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 foundations of what would become mankind and and uh, uh, do love and uh, the other characters. You can see that in there. Um, but I'm going to point specifically to his movement in the ring. Uh, you know, this is something that trained eyes in wrestling do. 
when you watch him moving in the ring, I want you to pay sp- close attention to his feet. As he's, whether he's hitting a move or he's taking a move or it's a misdirection, uh, it's very much this. Not this. Uncertain feet. Uh, Dominic used to call it stamping out ants. Um, and I like I pointed out to Moose last night. I said, look, that is Dominic's training. You now watch my feet later, and and you can see Dominic Danucci in the ring, and and what he had taught to Mick and I. Uh, uh, Mick is very unorthodox, uh, and he's working with a guy that's a polished guy, right? A, 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 a charismatic character, and somehow he made it mesh. And you know that's not an easy thing to do at times. Um, the uh, like I said, I think uh, Johnny was a, a bit too early. The business hadn't yet gotten to that over-the-top place that it would be going. Um, but Mick, in his positioning and in his movements, even when he's doing the awkward stuff, like his, his kick being left-handed, his kicks are look, look sort of backward or, or disorderly to me because he's he's reversed. Um, and But I, I watch his positioning, and, and a lot of that stuff, but it's in and out of the corners and switching places. Again, watch Mick's feet. It's not a tap dance into the, into the corner. It's a boom, boom, boom. Very much like a basketball player putting it in the plant foot and then and, and taking the shot. Uh, and in that, you can see that even in that whole crazy list of characters that Mick Foley played, on the foundational point of it, Dominic had imbued himself and in, in, in even a character as crazy as Cactus Jack, right? So uh, uh, it was interesting to watch, you know, because it's been so long since I've seen those matches. And this is like not long after us in Dominic's school. And uh, yeah, uh, but you know, both of them working on, and you're right, the, the, the finish bled out. <laughs> Bill Watts' <laughs> finish, right? And, and you could also see the, how they were curtailed on time. So like a lot of the stuff that you would expect to see in the, in, the, in a match between two guys like that was not in that match because it's a curtain jerk where to get in there and get out of there. And you know, in the in the business's mindset, this is where we're going to check out the camera angles, make sure the lighting's good, the cameras and the sound is good. Uh, they go in there, bap, 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 something simple, move, cover, one, two, three, in and out. Uh, curtain jerk, the classic curtain jerk. As you said, it was a very, very quick in and out match. Two minutes, 50 seconds, Cactus Jack wins via pinfall. Then the next thing is, that, now I know you said you're watching the matches, you may have skipped through here and there. Did you watch the Two Cold Scorpio vignette? Yes, yeah. Huh. Yeah. I, I, I said, I can't wait till the next time I see Charlie and uh, uh, Scotty because I I want to see how much that they take ownership of. If it, it, does that embarrass them like like Dean Douglas does me or Dynamic Dudes does me? Uh, but I, I, you know, I like the, the charisma that Charlie was showing in that. You know, and again, we're looking at this from 2023 back. But at this time, you know, this is like one of the things that, you know, we in wrestling were trying to imbue me kids. Hey, school's important. And sometimes that sounds a little bit corny coming from like a, like a franchise type character saying that would be like, ah, oh, come on, get out of here. Uh, so I like the message that was in it, but it looked, it, when I look back at this kind of stuff, there's a time, there, there's, there's the instances when I watch it and I think, boy, this looks very dated to this moment in time. And, and you know, and, you know, look, rap music is making its it, its rise now. It's still you know on its trajectory upward, um, and uh, you know, right in the same time frame, we have can't touch this, da, 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 you know, and, and, and the dancing guy and everything. And then Charlie's got great rhythm, right? Uh, but I'm watching his match. He the, the, he'll he does a lot of these off the top rope things onto Scotty, 
and I want to point this out because I say it all the time, and I know it sounds like I'm making this up. He floats. He doesn't come. He's not up and down. He jumps in there, and there's just sort of like da, 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 da. he it's, comes down. It's like hang time, like isn't it? Yes. You must be the only heavyweight who has that. Yeah, yeah. Trust me, gravity grabbed my ass when I jump off that top <laughs> rope, and, and I watch him, and it's I always little joke. Are you got bird bones or something? Like cause he 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 would get up and just like oh, dude, okay, he's coming. Oh, hold on, he'll be here. Oh, there he is. Boom. Right, and and he and he comes down on you. Uh amazing. I, I to this day I don't know how he does it. Uh, just with the vignette as well, I want to harp on it because it really made me laugh. I actually first saw this on the WrestleCrap website. Because uh, it's just it's just so bananas. Because I think it's yes. like some kids at the basketball court. They don't want to go to school. Then Two Cold <laughs> Scorpio turns up in a limo and tells them to go to school. And he says, I'll "Tell you what, I'll take you there." What in the limo? No. Are we, we going to walk? No. And then I think he sort of intimates that he's going to dance them to school. And then he starts <laughs> yeah. doing a little. <laughs> then he starts doing a little <laughs> yeah. dance. But yeah. Well, what do you- when they when he first I would take you to school, I'm thinking, like, dude, like, don't put them in that car because bad things. Like, <laughs> again, today looking back, you're like, no, 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 don't do that. Uh, uh, yeah, just you know, it's funny again how this stuff like so dates to that time, like, and you can see it. But you know, it, it, again, for me, like, look at what he's doing and look at in context of the time frame he's doing it. Uh, you know, the, each time he does like a jump in the air and spin and leg drop or the one and a half or you know just these things he's doing that really you hadn't you the 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 most ardent wrestling fans had probably seen some of that in japan with the smaller guys like a mysterio or you know uh uh uh, uh you know some of the luchadors of mexico yeah. and some of the, the japanese wrestlers uh fun uh, liger and things uh but you hadn't seen a 230 240 pound guy doing those types of things and uh i think charlie really opened the door to that you know that hey you know these guys can do, do other stuff than just you know lock up headlocks and, and and bear hugs and things uh way before his time uh scorpio wins clean with the 450 in 430 we'll talk about raven another time there's gonna be plenty of opportunities for raven yeah, to yeah. come up we'll we'll stick with scorpio just very briefly who invented the 450 was it scorpio was it scott steiner as far as you know Oh, good. You got me. I watching any, each of them doing. I was, you know, just flummoxed. The guys like my size were able to do those kind of moves, you know, that they, uh, uh, again, this is this transition period of wrestling where we're seeing like all this new stuff being tried and uh, some of it's working, some of it's not working, but you can see like where it's opening doors, you know, how many people, since when we, when we look at what we call spot monkey wrestling today, I think you can point a lot of that back. Not blaming, but you can see where the where the clearly these kids paid attention, to like what Sabu was doing and what Scorpio was doing, and and imbuing that into their own work, much like I was trying to imbue Bruno and guys like that into my work. Uh, you know, it's uh, like I've always said with Charlie, he he's one of those guys that for whatever reason, uh, you know, we talk about so many guys like this, but just so underutilized because he how how. Uh, deft he was in the ring. Now we have a history package on the Thundercage setup, and then Harley Race. This is a uh, on a show beforehand. Harley Race trying to find people for his team to enter the Thundercage match. I have written here: someone shoot Michael Hayes. He's the worst interviewer. Uh, I think <laughs> it's just because he kept just like speaking every two. Uh huh. Uh huh. Catch us, Jack. 
Like just repeating yeah. everything Harley said. Anyway, that's, that's my thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul Orndorff Cactus Jack match on WCW main events where Cactus doesn't appreciate Harley throwing him back in the ring and he attacks Harley, prompting Vader to come out and triple team Cactus along with Harley and Paul Orndorff. Orndorff would soon finish up with Smoky Mountain Wrestling and join WCW full-time once again, filling in for Rick Rude. And then, as we saw later on in that uh, package to set up this Thunder Cage match, Cactus then comes out later with a shovel and beats up all three men. Uh, Of the three people that Cactus hits, did you notice who he hit very hard? Uh, it looked like on the shots himself, like Vader was taking the the stiffer shots. I I can see him being really careful with, uh, with Harley. Um, but I thought all the shots, again, hindsight, looking back for the things that we would see Mick do later with chair shots, both giving and taking, I thought that the shovel looked to what we'd see later, really lame comparatively, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, again, this is the front end. They hadn't seen a lot of that kind of stuff previous. Now, uh, I, I'm going to save this for a bit later, but there is a little mystery here as to why Cactus Jack was turned babyface. But we'll explore that uh, later oh, on. In the rest of this show, we've got, I don't know, a few minutes left. Uh, the next bit is the Slam Jam 1 advert with a song that I've written here, Loki Slaps. It was actually a really good bit of hip-hop. Uh, decent hip hop. Don't step to Ron. Ron Simmons's theme. That's the first track off the Slam Jam number one WCW uh, album, and uh, this annoyed WWF because they had intended on calling their album Slam and Jam, or one way really? or the other. Yeah, but somehow no. WCW beat them to the punch on that one. Anyway, <laughs> next one, and we'll probably end on this actually. Uh, Chris Benoit with the Zebra Stripes versus Brad Armstrong, a low key dream match between two of the finest technical wrestlers of any generation. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when we were going through it, uh, Chris had, had, had gone a little bit past the beginning of the match. And in a second or two, I see the, the German suplex. I know it's Brad. I can see his boots BA. But I, I know that the tights, that, like it was in my brain. I knew who wore those tights. But I because you couldn't see who it was. I was, wait, who, who, who's doing that? Uh, you know, and I'm waiting, waiting, waiting. And then he gets up and you see the hair and they almost simultaneously Jim Ross or somebody says, uh, you know, Chris Benoit over Brad Armstrong. And I thought, that's right. Chris wore those tights. And, uh, you know, you go back and watch that German suplex at the end. It is flawlessly executed. And, you know, to me, that is again, like what, what you saw, coming out of Stu's school, what you saw coming out of the dojos in Japan, uh, the, 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 the promotions in, in uh, Mexico, there, when they would hit those particular moves, especially finished moves, there was no leeway to do it half-assed or sort of right. And, you know, to me, like you can see in Benoit's execution of that, uh, him understanding how important that, you can screw anything else up in the match, that has to be perfect. And I'm not saying he screwed anything else up in the match, but like that was like, oop, boom, exclamation point. And, uh, and Brad taking it right. And you see Brad making a competitive match the whole way through, you know, I think Brad's one of those guys. Yeah. I think the fans that know me out there know how, you know, how much I looked up to and respected Brad. I were good friends and lived together, traveled together, but he was really excellent in the ring. And when you go back and watch him, he's again, like one of those unsung heroes that you scratch your head and think like, 
uh, okay, why? And in Brad's case, I think a big part of it was the character that you would see on TV was the character that he would portray uh, because of what he had grown up watching. He watched his dad, the you know, Bob Arthur, the bullet. I'm going to go out there and give 100%. I'm going to burn, 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 burn off. Okay, I believe that sounds great. Uh, Brad would get on. But the funny thing was, you know, we've all seen now in hindsight uh, Brian James, you know, how animated and the dancing and the, the, the beatboxing and the rapping and stuff. Brad was... <laughs> Love you, Brian, but I think Brad was even more talented. In the dressing room, Brad could tell jokes, be moonwalking, uh, beatbox, make up a rap right there on the spot. Bah, bah, bah. But then he go in front of that camera, I'm going to go 100%. I'm like, oh, let that guy in the dressing room out. My God, that's a that guy's a star. And he just could not do it. Like, Brian was the one to figure it out. Like, I can go out there and, you know, be a little over the top and and, and be so much more entertaining. Um but that said, when you watch Brad in the ring, I, I would argue to you, find something that doesn't look legit with him when you're watching. It's just, you know, like, oh, golf clap, you know, and it's it. like, that ain't easy for me. I'm, I'm, I'm a stickler on stuff like that. But boy, when I watch him back, and it doesn't matter if he's going over, you know, putting somebody over, he, he goes out there and delivers the goods every time. It's You'd be hard-pressed to really point something out that Brad fucks up in the ring. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, Chris is, this is, he's young here, you know, he's coming in there and, you know, getting a win over, a, over a vet like that is a big, big deal, but he didn't shirk from it either. Like he, you could see him taking it completely serious, uh, and the way he's executing his moves that, 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 when I think of, uh, Chris Benoit, that's what I see like that, you know, it wasn't just a grab by the wrist and throw the ropes. And then like you run 96 feet and come back and he looked like he could throw a tow truck. Like that, you know, he both leagues bending down, grabbing by both hands around the wrist. They're shoving the guys he goes by. Uh, each of those little things that any one of those things by themselves, almost meaningless, put them together collectively and watch Chris Benoit do an Irish whip, watch Chris Benoit do a flying headbutt, watch him do a German suplex, and it's bam, 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 bam. It's post to post. I want to. I'm so glad you mentioned Irish Whip. I just wrote down Irish Whip, and the reason I saw it is, Rip Rogers wonderfully describes it as as seen on TV wrestling. So if you yeah. think you're do, you think you're mimicking something, you Irish Whip somebody, just grab them by an arm, tug them, and then they'll do all the rest of the work. What these two were doing when they did the Irish Whip, grab one hand, hand on the back with the other, throw them, and then follow with them into the ropes, yes. and then when they yeah. bounce back, they've got one step before they're hit. So you can actually, yep. that's something that you can buy. And I really enjoy people who can do an Irish whip properly. Yeah, yeah, we, and we all get lazy, right? I mean, it's why we're all, I, I think, our worst critic. Where you, any of us watch our matches back, it's like, I see everything I'm doing wrong. We all, those of us that are being serious with ourselves, we, we catch everything we're doing wrong because we don't want to do the wrong things. Uh, but when you watch guys like Brad and guys like Benoit, like I said, go back and watch that freeze frame and watch them frame to frame. Uh, I still dare you to find something that doesn't look legit. That doesn't come off as believable. Uh, again, those two guys are like the poster childs uh, for, the the kayfabe of our business, the protecting of our business, making it look like what it's supposed to look like, and you, know, you see the thing like in the Lucha Libre, right? They'll tap you on the shoulder, you run twenty feet that mm -hmm. way, and then twenty feet back, and I clothesline you. Well, you look like a dumbass, right? 
but like you're describing it and, and right as you're coming off those words, boom, there's the cl- clothesline taking mm-hmm. your head off. One looks legit and one looks like sports entertainment to me. Yeah, that was a world of sport, Irish whips. That's how they do it there. Obviously, the rings are smaller, but you whipped yeah. them in. I mean, before basically you, let's say I'm the person giving the whip, before my arm hand lets go of their arm, they're already in the ropes and they've yes. got one step out before they get hit. So there's none of this right. sort of like, you know, just obviously running by yourself. Uh, let me just go yep, through a couple yep. of things with the. Uh, Match, the crowd did not care at all to start off with, uh, but they would do later on. Little things just like how deep Benoit throws a kick to the gut lets you mm-hmm. know that shit's on. Because it's just like... Oh, yeah. And it looks... It, it didn't look like he killed him, but it looked serious because he, he, his knees even brought back with the force of uh, yeah. uh, Brad coming towards him. Uh, mm-hmm. What else? Uh, the first move the crowd actually reacts to is Benoit hanging Brad out to dry on the top rope with a suplex, sort of like that... Uh, what do you what do you call it? Not like a stun gun, but sort of like that with the belly, and then followed by a springboard clothesline onto the floor. The crowd just went mental, and I thought, God, what what a few years makes in the business because then Jericho would do that in every single match he was ever in. Yeah, but at the time yeah. that was like a hugely different thing. And then uh, Benoit misses an incredibly tight diving headbutt. Uh, Brad briefly takes over before Benoit counters into a bridging full Nelson suplex for the yep. pin. Absolutely yeah. flawlessly executed that last. Yes, move. sir. Uh, pretty yes, much sir. earns the golf clap. I mean, that's that for the for again the kids out there. Watch that back and emulate that. If there's something you want to emulate, that's the kind of stuff to emulate because it's I I, I for whoever's in that building, nobody's walking away going ah fake wrestling shit. Um, they're walking away going oh, those guys. They're in other words, they're turning themselves into being marks on mm-hmm. performances like that. Uh, just to end on, you were saying about Brad Armstrong could never get his personality behind the scenes in front of the camera and make money off that. When Vince Russo would go to WCW in 1999, he repackaged Brad Armstrong into, do you remember the character's name? No. Buzzkill. Buzzkill, yes. And he was told to imitate your more popular brother, Brian, as closely as humanly possible. Do you remember? Do you remember the Buzzkill days? Uh, I I I don't remember specifically. I I if I'm not mistaken, uh, he sort of. It, it, you can see Brad in his wrestling stuff while he's playing that character. Looks like Brad Armstrong, but the stuff in between looked contrived uh, because it it just wasn't. He had grown up watching that style of wrestling where the baby faces were going to give a hundred percent and all that kind of thing. And for whatever reason, he couldn't break that. It, if you want to see Brad looking, at least in my estimation, looking like something that is a work, it was him trying to portray this character. Cause it was a, it was a quantum leap from him. Uh, that was p- pretty much the guy he would play in the dressing room. Uh, but convincingly back there, cause there's no cameras and he's just hanging out with the guys out in front. It always reminded me of the, uh, uh, I don't know if it'll make reference to you guys in England. Uh, uh, the old Looney Tunes cartoons, yeah, of course, right? Yeah. And uh, and they had the uh, remember the guy the construction worker finds the box under the time like a time capsule. Oh, there's a frog. Hello, my baby. Hello, my darling. He comes out dancing and singing and walking the tightrope, and then he gets in front of the camera, and the frog goes ribbit. Right? That was Brad. Brad was the hello, my baby guy in the dressing room, but in front of a camera, ribbit. <laughs> Michigan. Jay Frog. I even know the name. 
Boom. That's it. I would have never, a million bucks I couldn't have given that name. But that's it. Michigan J Frog. Yes, sir. There you go. I'll tell you Tight what. Rope I'm... walking. Got the umbrella in his hand. Top hat. He was one of my favorite characters. And he was never even, he was rarely in the cartoons as well. Anyway, we could get on Warner Brothers, I'm sure, for another time. But for now, thank you very much for watching, everybody. We still don't have any plugs. Uh, next week will be the fan question episode. And next week, I'm going to tell you how to contact us for the subsequent, the month after's fan question episode. But for now, Shane takes out the show. Hey, you've been paying attention again in franchises, uh, uh, university class dismissed. <laughs>